1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and I had a lovely email this week from a reader and listener, John Gilbert in Vancouver. He's been reading the TLS for a mere 66 years and listens to this podcast as he does his daily two and a half mile walk. And he makes this suggestion. For Thea, someday you must give her the opportunity to open the podcast with a merry quip and jest about your cheese-eating habits. Over to you, Thea. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much, John Gilbert, for offering me this opportunity. But I think, Stig, your taste for Baby Bell is no laughing matter. It's
1: not. It's not. I, 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 have, I, I increasingly realise I have the most base tastes in almost every respect. <laughs> every conversation we have, and the TLS is a terrible place if you have a, any degree of inadequacy about this sort of thing, because it is a place of elevated tastes. That must be said. And I, I,
2: don't, I don't think you like the Baby Bell equivalent of literature, though.
1: Oh, yeah. is Lee I mean, Child Lee not Child the Baby again. Bell of the Matt the producer <laughs> is nodding enthusiastically
2: there is something
1: I think you want Baby Bell in your life in all sorts of areas I mean you don't only want Baby
3: Bell
2: but there are plenty of oh dear there are plenty of cheeses that are made in a much better fashion and that are much better tasting but fulfil the same kind of place in your Child diet is, as, as a Baby Bell might
1: maybe Lee Child is just a a cheddar a good cheddar
2: Oh, I don't. Okay, maybe. You I hate don't ch- know. You hate cheddar can then? I? No, no, I don't. You I, do, I, I, you're love, a, I love. You're a, you're a xenophobic I love. In the I love cheddar. I look. Look. Can I? Can I <laughs> <laughs> may I use my allocated yeah, time sorry. to say something else? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: John Gilbert would like you to do that. Yes.
2: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I would like to tell John Gilbert and anyone else who is interested yeah. that the TLS podcast is going to be at Bath Festival. Oh yes. On the twenty fourth of May. It is. Uh, and we will be. To- well, not you, but Lucy no. Dallas and I. Uh, we'll be talking to Margaret Drabble, yes, the Margaret Drabble, and Robert Webb,
1: yes, the uh, Robert Webb,
2: the Robert Webb who wrote How Not to Be a Boy, yeah. um, his memoir of being a boy, <laughs> <laughs> and then a man, uh, and and it should be it should be a lot of fun. So it would be lovely to see some of you there. Details on the Bath Festival website.
1: All right, you had you had an opportunity to say anything you <laughs> liked about me, and you just shamelessly plugged your own show. <laughs> There we go. If you want to be like John Gilbert, and I definitely do, you can become a subscriber to the TLS. We're having a spring sale at the moment. Google TLS spring sale. You can get 95% off our subscription price for a couple more weeks. Or you can buy a lifetime subscription and stop any messing about. We've launched a lifetime subscription for £1,902 or dollars. And quite a lot of people have taken it up. It's how good many, value.
2: How many baby bells could you buy for you that You could buy a lot,
1: lot of baby, baby bells. But it'd be lifetime better. supply? It would be better for you <laughs> to get a lifetime supply of the TLS theater. <laughs> Coming up on the show this week, why did Richard Nixon stay so stubbornly unpopular? Sure, he was a liar and a crook, but that has not stopped the rehabilitation of many a politician. Barton Swaim has reviewed a new biography of Nixon and has discovered his Achilles heel. Squareness. We love a bit of theoretical physics on this show, and Thea is always happy to answer on email any specific questions you have on the subject. But before that, listen to Carlo Rovelli, whose latest book is called The Order of Time. He's being interviewed by our very own Samuel Graydon. And finally, why is it that certain ailments suffered by women are so scarcely discussed or resolved? We'll be talking to Leonor Tifa about a book with the unimprovable title Ask Me About My Uterus.
3: Why does everyone
1: still hate Richard Nixon so much? A simple question without necessarily one straightforward answer. Barton Swaim offers up one theory this week taken from The New Life of Richard Nixon by John A. Farrell. There is cool and there is square. And Richard Milhouse Nixon was nothing if not square. Is that the reason for his lack of rehabilitation? He famously lost out to Kennedy in the TV debates because he looked so uncomfortable, so sweaty and shifty. And maybe that pointed to something in his personality, a lack of ease with himself that easily encouraged mistrust in others. And then Watergate came along to prove all of that mistrust justified. Barton Swaim joins Thea and me on the line now. Barton, Hello. Hi there. First of all, let's try and pinpoint where does the reputation of Nixon now stand in America and what is this book trying to do to it?
4: Nixon, after he left office, he wrote a series of fairly serious books, in some ways rehabilitated his reputation, but there is still a lingering hatred particularly in my experience. So I, I'm 45. People of uh, just older than me regard Nixon with this intense hatred that I've never understood.
2: In terms of these people who, who hate Nixon, what is it that he represents to them?
4: There's something dislikable about even his looks. Yeah. He came across as stiff, uh, slightly humorless, and he looks kind of mean. Now, I don't mean to insult people who hate Nixon (laughs) by just saying that it was all style and no substance. Uh, But I think the style did not help.
1: So do you think, I mean, it's an interesting point, coolness, how important is coolness to a president? Because you could say Obama had coolness, you could Mm. say Trump doesn't have coolness, I wouldn't have thought. Do you think that's a a reasonable thing that people rightly or wrongly do judge a president on?
4: My wife and I were discussing George W. Bush (laughs) the other day and (laughs) I was not a, um, a despiser of George W. Bush, but anytime he talked, I sort of cringed because I was, I was scared, you know, that he was going to say something wrong or, and when you have a, a president who is fluent, like Clinton or somebody, you sort of relax. He's just easier to like. He's, you know, you, you don't mind when he shows up on television. You're not afraid that uh, he's going to create some tobacco. So I, I do think that coolness plays a part in the degree to which people like or dislike a president
1: you quote nixon in the piece which is a great quote i think he's saying this all you need is a competent cabinet to run the country at home you need a president for foreign policy how did he perform on the foreign front is that a place where reasonably his reputation should be salvaged
4: isn't that a great quote? I mean, yeah. imagine a president today saying anything like that. Um, <laughs> he's actually—you he, probably can yeah, imagine he's, that.
1: No. He's, he's living it now. I mean, I want to talk <laughs> in a moment. The whole idea of Nixon in China, Trump in Korea, is a interesting parallel for us to get to. But what, what, what was Nixon like on the foreign stage? He he had
4: very complex views, and he was he was quite mistrustful of his counterparts on the international stage, and in in many cases, rightly so. But he he liked to play a really complex game with whoever he was dealing with, you know, famously so with the Soviets. He told uh, his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, that he wanted Kissinger and Haldeman to convey to the Soviets that Nixon wasn't always um, in his right mind and you never knew what he was gonna do, you know, the so-called madman theory of the presidency. And it really didn't work um, because Nixon was far too calculating and everybody knew it for him to be thought mad. Um, I've talked to people, and almost invariably, their impression was that if it was a domestic issue he was talking about, he had he had really no clue what he was talking <laughs> about. He had been briefed maybe five minutes before. but um what he what he cared about was the leadership of the United States on the in- international front. and that's what drove him in his presidency. I think
2: and you say you say his complex approach was sort of rooted in what sounds like budget pop psychology (laughs) sometimes, but uh, you also describe him as highly intellectual.
4: He had very low regard for what we today and maybe then would call the foreign policy establishment. Um, He would always go out of his way to criticise whatever everybody was saying in diplomatic circles. He was somewhat self-centred. He alone was capable of understanding the complexities of the other side. Um, And that was in some ways a weakness. But he was a reader, which is, um, you know, a valuable thing in a president. (laughs) Well, it's an interesting thing,
1: because as you're saying all these things, the thing that there's kind of I'm sure people listening are just box ticking Mm. the Trump comparison here. Of course, not a reader, not an intellectual, but arguably has put this the madman theory into actual practice in terms of foreign policy because he deals with a bunch of mavericks in the form of Putin or Kim Jong-un and clearly they don't know what to make of him because he is unstable and he doesn't like groupthink and the the establishment and the traditional means of diplomacy. Um, Is it profitable or or, or just pointless to to endlessly compare him with Trump? Do you think when you were writing this and reading about Nixon, were you thinking of the the, the parallels with Trump? Well, you...
4: (laughs) If you write about politics, you can't stop thinking about Trump right now. And it was sort of a triumph
1: not to use Trump's name. Yeah, I was was pleased to be honest, and now I'm asking you questions about it. But as you're saying this stuff, I am thinking, oh, Trump, oh,
4: Mm, not Trump. (laughs) Lacking in self-confidence,
2: paranoia, extreme vanity. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. Somewhere a couple of years ago, I I made this comparison. Nixon wanted to be perceived as a madman, but everybody knew he was calculating, whereas Trump (laughs) is kind of mad in a way, or at least he's hes very good at, at conveying that. Um, I think probably more often Trump is, maybe foolishly, he has some end in mind. Oh, you think um, so? Trump acts on instinct, and for that reason, he's much better at uh, pretending to be the madman than, than Nixon was. Is, is it
1: fair to say, I mean, you know, Nixon is sort of Trump with a, a brain and a library card.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah, Trump doesn't read. <laughs> At least, I don't think he does. No, he's, he, he was but, asked
1: his favorite book, and he said the one he allegedly wrote, which of course he didn't write. But his favorite book was uh, *The Art of the Deal*.
4: Yeah, Disraeli said if he was it, Disraeli. It was Disraeli. If Disraeli, he wanted yeah. to read a novel, he would write one. Yeah, I love that quote. Um, well, but that didn't—that only applied to novels.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I'm I'm struck by. Buy, I didn't really realize this, not knowing my American history. Brilliant, so brilliantly, was that a lot of Nixon's early career was was that a failure? I mean he fails in 60 obviously famously to kennedy but he fails again in 62 to be governor of california it was a bit of a surprise he almost got it in in 68 wasn't it
4: that's right that's right it's 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 the most amazing comeback in politics you see he ran for a governor there's this great line from uh, one of his advisors came out with a memoir a few years ago after he lost he called his advisor was trying to cheer him up and nixon said well it's okay um at least I don't have to talk about drug addiction or any of that crap anymore. How he went from being this failed presidential candidate, and once you lose a lower office than the one you've already held, it's hard to see how anybody could come so back. So how did that. how did
1: he do it? Was it just because Lyndon Johnson was a kind of surprise, not not standing for the next one? Was it just the you know Vietnam meant that the, the previous administration was so tainted they would take any Republican at that point?
4: Yeah, and Lyndon Johnson was unpopular. The Vietnam War was going very badly. On the Republican side, as often happens on either side, there was just nobody who was viable.
1: Yeah.
4: It just worked out for him. I mean, it was tremendous luck. Nixon was somewhat haunted by the idea of of luck. He, he never felt that he had quite earned what he had and felt that he had just gotten lucky in first being picked to run as vice president, and then his timing was lucky in '67 and '68, and so on. And luck is a real thing in politics.
2: Well, and all of which presumably fueled his his paranoia and his sense that people are out to to get him and knock him off mm-hmm. his his um, his platform.
1: Yeah. And then the thing that did for him was that the Craven, in some senses, attempt to cling on because he perhaps felt he wasn't didn't deserve it, but then would almost do anything. To cling on to power, which of course, what that landed him in trouble with Watergate.
4: Yeah, in order to deserve it. Yeah, in his later books, in his in his memoir, you get the sense that he was still trying to earn whatever it was he earned, um, some triumph that would justify his presidency. Yeah. It's very sad.
1: Uh, just, just finally, there's lots of Nixon books. Do we need this one? Is this what you? <laughs> is this a worthy addition to the canon? Did you learn anything new as a book? It what what is this like?
4: It's a terrific book. I have not enjoyed a lot of Nixon books, partly because some some authors seem to go out of their way to portray him in an unjustifiably negative light. I mean we already know the the obvious. We don't need to be told it again and again. but also Farrell has a really good sense of propelling the narrative along and doesn't get bogged down. He has episodes where he goes into great detail, but the narrative drive in this book is absolutely terrific, I thought.
1: So if people don't know that much about the nitty gritty, this would be a good place to start almost.
4: Oh, yeah. And he, he doesn't pick up the story until Nixon is asked to run for office just after the Second World War. He doesn't deal with childhood or yeah. with his parents or any any of that.
1: So this is a political uh, book. It's a politi- it's a properly political capital P book. It, yes. Lovely. Barton Swope, thank you very much indeed. Thank you both. I think about that quote from Nixon all the time when I think about Trump, because there is the beginnings of a plausible Mm. narrative that Mm. whatever Trump says that's awful and whatever mistakes he makes domestically, you can at least begin to posit an argument that by being this maverick, Mm. he may achieve accidentally even some good on the foreign Mm. field.
2: Mm, And it's difficult to know whether you would want that. (laughs) You you would want the good to be there. But if it it came at the cost of him claiming that it was all bad.
1: I think in the end, the stakes are so high. I mean, and and who knows whether it's genuine. But I was reading a story yesterday that South Korea is saying if they do, if peace talks proceed with with North Korea, Trump should win the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, my gosh. And I was going, that's outrageous. And then I should remember <laughs> that Obama won it yes. for absolutely nothing at all. Really. Yeah. And there's plenty of people who've won that award yeah. for nothing. And
2: yeah.
1: if it is genuinely true that his actions willy-nilly have contributed to something like the denuclearization of North Korea,
2: it'd be hard to argue with. Them. Well, I mean, I'm I sure say- you could work out work out the... The kind of the death count elsewhere that he has caused by you know withdrawing funding from uh, NGOs, uh, yeah, you know, you could you could tot it all up, and I'm sure that the damage would still out, outweigh the um,
1: but we also can't progress. be churlish, I think. Cause, I mean, no, our animosity towards never. him, if 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 he were you know, if he were to achieve good things, we may have to hold our hands up and say, Well done, Trump.
2: No, I don't know. You can say that. Yeah, I didn't think I still would. couldn't. I should we should we talk quickly about the other things that we have that chime in with Girl, our, with a good our idea, excellent it. 1968 theme? Yeah, because you,
1: you've been the driving force behind it. <laughs> yeah, so 1968, so it's the anniversary of that.
2: Yes, and we have um, an excellent review by Sudhir Hazari Singh of Richard Vynon's new book, The Long 68, which is this kind of magisterial overview.
1: Not an entirely complimentary review. No, no, it say. isn't.
2: So Sudhir's review, I would say, is a magisterial overview um, because it sort of points out the holes, the gaps in the narrative. Uh, of of which there are a fair number, uh, namely the complete absence of of reference to Mexico in 1968, which is one of our most important 1968s, on which count we have um, Elena Poniatowska writing a piece for us all about her experience of being in Mexico City. Of course, she is famous for writing um, Massacre in Mexico, which was the first, I think, for about 20 years, it was the first book to take issue with the official government account of what happened that day when... You know, 5,000 soldiers descended on twice as many student protesters and and, and massacred people, ran them over with tanks, shot them. Elena Poniatowska uh, wrote this famous account where she went into uh, the prisons in the aftermath and spoke to the protesters and tried to get her head around what happened. Uh, and, and that's interesting in part because one of the questions that Sudir poses in his piece is what is the legacy of 1968? Yeah. And whereas he sort of looks specifically at its side on the protest what kind of protest has carried the legacy of 68 um poniatowska's piece looks at the legacy in the on the government side uh, and what we see in mexico uh, as we see in other countries the legacy means doubling down becoming more autocratic more violent and in mexico you see these repressions on a daily basis
1: it's almost as if in other countries there are these moments in 68 that either were meaningful or not mm. depending on how you judge it but mexico it's just the same. Mm. I mean, it is almost exactly the same. It's continuation. They they did something overt. The massacre was overt and and clearly from the government. And what tends to happen now is that people disappear Mm. with government complicity and agency. 13 a day. But it's not necessarily that Mm. visual scene. I mean, the depressing thing about that piece is the Mexico of 68 and the Mexico of today are very, very similar in a Mm. way that Czechoslovakia no longer exists, The you know East West Germany no mm. longer exists, the France of 68 feels very different mm. now, whereas Mexico, you read that piece and if she'd said this happened two weeks ago, you wouldn't be astonished.
2: No, not at all, not at all. Uh, and so for that reason, 68 in Mexico is, is a very clear uh, and defined, pinpointed legacy, uh, whereas in the Czech Republic... For example, it isn't. It's much more mottled, much more complicated. Uh, but we would need a whole other podcast we to talk about that. We deal with that. Stuff. Read the paper. Read the paper. <laughs> Read the paper. <laughs> That's always the mottoing. Always the mottoing. <laughs>
1: So, Thea and I debated which one of us should introduce this item. On the one hand, I'm sure nobody wants me to start mansplaining female ailments. On the other, we didn't want to imply that the subject could only be introduced by a woman. So here goes. Abby Norman has a new book out called Ask Me About My Uterus with this subtitle a quest to make doctors believe in women's pain. It focuses on the illness endometriosis, which is a disorder of the cells in the uterine lining. This painful condition affecting between five and 15% of women evades any simple statements about origins, diagnosis, or treatment. It is therefore a useful means to consider all sorts of broader issues, how much we can collectively understand about another's pain, and more specifically, the persistent and widespread sexist bias in medicine that means a condition suffered by a woman is either ignored, minimised or blithely mistreated. Reviewing this book in this week's TLS is author Leonor Tifa, who joins Thea and me now. Leonor, hello. How are you doing? First, let's talk about the book itself um, and, and Abby's Norman's story. Why, why was it so hard for her to convince people about the reality of, of her pain?
3: Well, it seems that's par for the course when it comes to endometriosis. She talks about uh, Hilary Mantel, for example, who had exactly the same problem and had at least uh, 10 years worth of difficulty in getting a clear diagnosis. It just seems that the the symptoms are, overlap with other kinds of symptoms and the whole problem is so kind of unpleasant to discuss that a clear diagnosis is difficult to make. And is it the
1: subject of effectively sexism within the medical industry that it, it's a, 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 a condition that affects only women and the historically male establishment isn't that interested in getting to the bottom of it
3: you know i i don't know if i would put it that way i don't know if gender bias is the main lens that i would that i would use i think it has to do with pain vague pain and pain in the sort of genital reproductive area for example i used to work in a urology department And men would come in with vague pains in their scrotum or some place in their penis or behind their penis. or It was all kind of vague. And uh, they didn't get a clear diagnosis or treatment plan either. I think it's much more common for women, but I don't think it's only about gender. I think a lot of it is about pain and where it is.
2: And I suppose where it is, and as you say, it's it's vague. Uh, it's a vague pain. I suppose that's only going to compound this this problem because self doubt seems to play a very very big role here. And if if you if you doubt it yourself, it's going to be that much harder to convince anyone else that there is in fact something wrong with you and that it is not just only in your mind.
3: Yeah, I think that's really true about pain because it comes and goes. It's not like you know a sharp stabbing pain because you've got a you know, an arrow buried in your arm, the whole interior, you know, with the abdomen, the the pelvic area, even the chest area, uh, internal pains are hard to identify.
1: And did Abby Norman feel that it might be psychosomatic, that she had guilt, uh, guilt over her past family life? She had a very complicated family. So even to herself, she was never sure what was real pain in inverted commas and, and 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 what was was somehow psychically caused
3: yeah i think that's true but i i also think that you know if the first time she had this which was when she was 19 and a freshman in college it was stabbing it was horrible if if uh when she'd gone to the hospital which she did they had said oh you know women your age and it could be something like endometriosis and let's work it up you know, I, I don't think she would have gone down the psychosomatic route. I think the psychosomatic route is was in, encouraged uh, by the inquiries and the interrogation that she got from numerous healthcare professionals.
2: You mentioned that the book does contain these iconic stories of 20th century medical mishandling of women. What do those what shape do those stories take, and what do they what does Abby Norman sort of use them to suggest, and how? Well, I think she she was mistreated
3: by a lot of these healthcare professionals. That her the reality of her pain was questioned, and there was so little help for her. And she takes both of those uh, aspects the the questioning and the lack of help and she just kind of goes through the history of a lot of. Uh, reproductive and pregnancy related and menstruation related difficulties that women have had, uh, low these many years, centuries, uh, and the lack of clarity that there is about these diagnoses and, and the disbelief about pain that women have been subjected to. I, I just think there is a lot of pain associated mm. with women's reproductive functioning and um there's just been not enough research focused on it and and yet doctors have stepped into this vacuum with their uh, alleged certainty when it comes to you know oh it must be all mental uh, that kind of thing so i mean there is a a gendered angle because i think women have had more of these kinds of complaints
1: and do you believe more broadly that there is an anti-woman bias within the medical establishment leaving aside an endometriosis in this specific case do you think that this is at least an example of a, of a broader problem or do you think it's just in and of itself um, um it doesn't it doesn't point to anything larger
3: you know uh, in 2018 i don't know as how i would say there's an anti-woman bias i think in 2018 there is a legacy of disinterest in women's complaints or prioritizing men's complaints and men's um, perspective. Uh, but I think if you walk into the office now, do you get the kind of dismissal, disparagement that is frank sexism? You know, I. I hope I'm not naive in saying I, I don't see it that way. But the legacy that uh, results in the lack of clear diagnoses and the lack of clear treatments, uh, that's definitely the case. And most of Abby's stories, you know, are quite um, from the past, early 20th century, even 19th century. And so that legacy, I think we want to take that seriously and look how that endures in um, a nomenclature, in diagnostic workups, in treatment availability, even in reimbursement policies, although that's more relevant for us here than for you. Um, that legacy exists, but is there actual sexism on the ground? I don't know. I don't think I want to be that oversimplified about
1: yeah. it. There's an interesting point though about the sort of pathologization of um, symptoms and it's hard to strike the balance isn't it because you could make an argument that one thing the medical establishment has done too much of is turn ordinary emotions and ordinary sort of emotional difficulties into diseases that need to be treated. Particularly in America there's a very widespread a medicalization I suppose of lots of conditions into in order to enable expensive treatment where do you think the balance should should lie here because it's a risk isn't it if you, if you just take something that you feel is emotional and you turn it into a pathology that you have to treat with medicine that there's a there's a problem if you go down that route as well
3: yeah there's no question that medicalization is a serious problem uh, I've written at length about that when it comes to the medicalization, over-medicalization of women's sexual complaints, but it isn't about not taking them seriously. I mean, medicalization has become sort of synonymous with taking it seriously, thinking it's real, because real has become synonymous with biological, physiological, you know, measurable, and that's that's a mistake. I mean, real, women's, Sexual complaints are real, okay, periods, full stop. But what kind of a problem is it? What kind of a workup is required? What kinds of interventions are likely to be of help? That's not necessarily medical, slash, physiological, slash, pharmacological. So I think, you know, this, again, this legacy of not taking things seriously um, has. Morphed into well, taking it seriously is proven by we have a a, a medical biological treatment. And that means I, I just want to say that on. endometriosis, I think, is you know a, a medical physiological condition. So we've broadened the. I,
1: I think that's very true. Because is there a problem in in America particularly where if you over medicalize, you you end up treating with pills, treating with drugs as it's, it's an over reliance on a pharmacological solution because you associate seriousness with medicine because you can have perfectly serious problems that you treat through a variety of other mechanisms but the, the, the two don't necessarily always seem to chime in the popular imagination
3: yeah I think that's very true and I think that it's a, a victory for the uh, big pharma as we call it for the pharmaceutical industry that it has managed to equate uh, real problems with uh, pharmacological treatment I remember I Um, an advertisement. Well, we have advertisements. I mean, that's the problem. (laughs) But an advertisement that I saw on the wall of uh, an airport that had pictures of men, just ordinary men looking kind of down in in the mouth a little bit. And the sign was real men, real depression. And the advertisement was for um, antidepressants. So, uh, I think there's a push to legitimate suffering by calling it real, uh, and then, of course, by treating it um, biologically. And I think you know a lot of that's happened with over the years trauma, PTSD, depression—all of these things that that you can't measure with a blood test or or any kind of a test for that matter.
1: I think. The fascinating thing about talking to you, Leonor, and your piece is that it's, it's a relatively small subject that, that you talk about, but it brings up all sorts of issues about what we mean about health and what we mean about treatment. And that, that's, that's the fascinating question, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that it is for me. That's why I was interested in reviewing the book. That and the point that endometriosis is still a mystery. And I think that needs to be raised up.
1: Leonor Tifa, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you.
2: It's an interesting point, isn't it? And one that you can't dispute that as soon as you can name the thing, uh, you can name a drug for it. Yeah. You just stick an axe or an X on the end, and, and there you go. And then there's money to be made.
1: And the real problem, I think, with mental health is the obvious area. This is the way you can mm. have a perfectly serious, indeed critically serious mental health condition for which the solution isn't drugs. And mm. The solution might be drugs, and lots of people do get better on drugs. But if you only associate seriousness with pharmacology, mm. You end up in a situation where, unless you're using pharmacology, the situation isn't serious, mm. and that I think in America it, that's particularly the case because mm. it's all it's all privatized. Medicine. I think we're
2: all heading that direction. But do you though.
1: think I I think that's pro- yeah, probably I true think as well. Yeah,
5: we're probably not that far behind.
2: No, it's
1: an interesting yeah, subject.
5: Absolutely
2: In popular science books, including seven brief lessons on physics and reality is not what it seems, the Italian theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli has studied the phenomena, namely time and space, that structure our very existence. In doing so, he has become something of a phenomenon himself, praised for his charm, clarity and humour, things we might not immediately associate with the field of quantum gravity. The world is, he says, far more complicated than what we see putting it mildly there. Reality, he shows time and again in his books, is mind-blowing. The TLS's Samuel Graydon carved out some space-time to talk to Carlo Rovelli about his most recent book, The Order of Time, and before grappling with the problem of what time is precisely, Sam began by asking what time is not.
6: The Times is a great newspaper, where the Times is singular, right? Uh, But the Times are changing, the Times is plural. I think this is a, in, 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 in a one sentence. What I show is that uh, what time is not is to be singular, to be one thing. Time is not one singular thing, one singular compact uh, concept. Uh, time is something that can be broken apart and in fact, is broken apart. And in the first part of the book, I do break it apart uh, by showing that there are layers in our notion of time. And these layers uh, are distinct, so distinct, that in fact, uh, we learn that they're independent from one another by showing them to be wrong in nature once we look more close into nature. And the first chapter is uh, one of the most... Uh, Striking effects of general relativity that was actually anticipated by Einstein a century ago, but nowadays finally we can measure it and we can confirm it uh, clearly, which is that time goes a different speed uh, depending on where you are so from some initial event, some snapping of a finger to some final event snapping of a finger, the time interval depend of how you're moving and uh, depend of where you are so to Twins uh, born in the same day could meet sometime later. One is aged much more and one is aged less. So they have different ages uh, sometimes. And that's an effect which is real. Uh, It can be measured today with real clocks. uh, And uh, we don't see it just because the effect is small here around on Earth, because we live in a particularly quiet area of the universe where this doesn't happen much. Uh, But it's a real thing. So time is not unique That's the first layer that times loses.
7: So the twins are different ages because one was traveling at a different speed from another one or was in a different place to another one?
6: Right. There are two effects, in fact. One is uh, uh, due to speed and one is due to location. If one of the two travels much faster, uh, so goes back and forth rapidly uh, from the moment they separate to the moment they meet, uh, this one is going to be younger. And if uh, one of the two goes to the mountains, <laughs> so it goes more away from the earth, uh, it's going to be older. So the more you go close to the earth, the more you go close to a mass, uh, the more time passes slowly in the sense that you don't age. Of course, for you, time is always time, right? For you, one hour is one hour. But once you compare to somebody who has been elsewhere, you you get the difference. Yeah.
7: So there are multiple times. There are multiple times, right.
6: So time is not singular,
7: it's it's plural. It begins to be plural. And you say something which I found disconcerting. You said the consequences of of time passing at a different rate in the same place is that that means that there is no now to speak of.
6: It's definitely disconcerting. In fact, the more you think about it, the more (laughs) it looks disconcerting. It's hard to square with our understanding of the world. And in fact, uh, there are many philosophers today who are working around this fact. Some philosophers are trying to confront this and say, how do we rethink reality? How are we supposed to rethink reality uh, after we have learned that? Because that, again, is a fact. Let me step back a moment. Why do we believe that time is the same for everybody? Because in our experience, it's the same for everybody, right? Because its effects uh, are very small, so we don't detect them. Good. So now, what do we mean by the same time? What do we mean by now? I can look at you, you look at me, and uh, I see you now, you see me now, and we clearly are in the same now. There's no doubt that we're in the same now, right? I see you moving a hand, and I move a hand, and and I know exactly when. But we are very close. We're very close, meaning uh, that the, the time light takes to go from you to me is very small. In fact, it's nanoseconds, which is, uh, is, is much smaller than anything we can, uh, uh, we can separate with our mind. If somebody's in New York and I communicate with this person, the time it takes voice to go back and forth via radio or telephone uh, is milliseconds, can be milliseconds, a little bit more. So I hear that person and that person hear me in a common shared time. But if somebody is far away, the time it takes the voice to come from that person to me and then back from me to that person is very long. So in the meanwhile, that person has uh, time there, have lapsed uh, maybe 15 minutes if uh, she's in uh, uh, Jupiter, or millennia if uh, she's in a faraway star, or m- maybe millions of years if it's a faraway galaxy. Now, when exactly in the middle of these millions of years is now there... Well, it turns out that if you try to solve this question precisely, you just there's no, there's no meaning to that. There's no meaning to ask what's happening now. We're just extrapolating uh, illegitimately the now that we share, you and I, which are, which are nearby. So the proper meaning of now is like a bubble around us, uh, which has a, a size which is determined by how far can go light in the time that we cannot resolve. So the question what is asking now on uh, on Andromeda, a a galaxy far away, it's just a meaningful, meaningless question, doesn't mean anything. Uh, And in fact, in general relativity, uh, we get a mathematical description of space time and how all this time distortions. And uh, so we can make a picture of the history of the universe, which works pretty well and uh, matches with our observation. If you, in this model we have of the universe, we are, you ask the question, what is the now? Where is the now? There's no answer. There's not any decent answer to that. So this intuition we have that the entire reality now is in some configuration and a moment later is another configuration is not good for thinking the world at large.
7: By which you mean the, the universe. The universe, the, the, the universe. At large, right. And I'm willing to be shot down. In fact, I'm, I'm asking for it. Are you saying that now doesn't exist because we need communication? We need light to travel from a place to another in which to tell time. Could we not say that the light takes a year to get somewhere, while well, what was happening a year ago when the light set out? Would that not be approximate to the, the same time? So... Could we not
6: say that, after all, there is a common now, we just don't detect it with sending lights back and forth? That's what you're asking. Um, Well, you could, but you would add something to what we see about the universe, uh, which uh, there is no way to detect it. There's not a unique way. You could do it in one way. I could do it in another way. And there's no way whatsoever to say who is right. That's one of the things the philosopher debated. Is that something we have to rely upon? We might do that, but I think, and that's my opinion shared by many, that if we do that, we're just forcing our intuition where it does not belong to, because we know the source of our intuition. The source of our intuition is that life is so fast that we can't talk about the common now. So we are looking at the world around us and then pretending to use notions that make sense here, pretending to use it elsewhere, and they might just not belong. It's like, you know, an Englishman going to French and asking, where is the, where is the queen? It just, there's no queen. And he says, well, but y- you have a queen. Maybe you don't know, but you have a queen. Right, but there's no queen in France. No, okay.
2: <laughs> Samuel Graydon and Carlo Rovelli. You'll find the full interview in your podcast feed.
1: That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Leonor Tifa, Sam Graydon and Carlo Rovelli. I just can't say it the way you do. <laughs> And to Barton Swain. Uh, Do pick up a copy of the paper where you can or subscribe online. This week we have a sustained investigation, as Thea has mentioned, into the phenomenon of 1968 all over the world. Well worth a read. Next week we'll be discussing mothers in literature and much else. Until then, from Thea and from me...